keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Ah, yes, the dignity of all humans, no matter what their religion or race. We're trying to achieve that. But 2015 started out as an exceptionally difficult year for the diaspora, for Jews around the world. There's been a sharp increase in violent and deadly attacks against Jews, most notably in Europe. In direct reaction to these, current prime minister of the state of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, called for all Jewish Europeans to give up their native land and to emigrate to Israel. That's on one side. On the other National director of the Anti-Defamation League, Abe Foxman, one of the most well-known figures in the fight against anti-Semitism, stated that Jewish departure from Europe, as called for by Netanyahu, would be, quote, a posthumous victory for Hitler and would fulfill his Judenrein vision, meaning getting all Jews out of Europe. That's what he wanted to do, and that's what Netanyahu wants to do. There's a new urgent focus on the meaning of of Jewish identity. Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Alice Rothschild. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Well, she has observed that when Jews of my generation were growing up, quote, love of Israel became the way to be Jewish in the United States. So if you didn't love Israel right or wrong, then you weren't a good Jew. Slowly and painfully, I believe that is beginning to change. But as our guest writes, being asked to give up a love and belief in a mythical Israel is a heartbreaking and painful experience for many. We're going to talk about that experience today. Again, thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Alice Rothschild is an obstetrician gynecologist who has worked in the healthcare reform and women's movements for many years. Since 1997, she's focused much of her energy on understanding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. She's written a number of books, Broken Promises, Broken Dreams, Stories of Jewish and Palestinian Traumas and Resilience. Her latest book is On the Brink, Israel and Palestine on the Eve of the 2014 Gaza Invasion. She's been speaking around the country uh, about this book, and she's also director and co-producer doing all the interviews in the new documentary, Voices Across the Divide. Again, Alice, thanks for being with us. It seems there's significant and growing tension within the American Jewish communities. On one hand is the mainstream, which still defines Jewish identity by an overarching, unquestioning love for Israel. And on the other are people who are disheartened 
by some of the actions of the Jewish state. An example, I got to tell you, is a friend, a woman in her early 60s who at a Hanukkah dinner in 2014 said, uh, you know, of all those trees that we as Jewish kids sponsored to be planted in Israel back in the 50s and 60s, she said, I want my tree back. You're Jewish, and you were also raised believing the state of Israel to be essential to the Jewish identity. How uniquely painful is this moment for Jewish Americans, do you think, Ellis? Well, I think it depends where you started. Um, for people in my mother's generation who um, you know, experienced the Holocaust and who saw Israel as this place of redemption and also this country that was going to be you know, the light unto the nations, um, this is enormously heartbreaking. Um, for people in the next generation like me, who sort of became more politicized in the 60s, um, we learned a lot about colonialism and imperialism and racism and all those kind of ways of looking at the world, and then gradually began to apply these issues to what was going on in Israel-Palestine. So for us, it was a different kind of pain and loss, but it was still having to give up this belief that we had in a country that was a magical place that could do no wrong, which is already a dangerous idea about a country. Um, so it really depends on um, where you started from. Um, you know, in the younger generations, you know, kids who have no understanding of anti-Semitism or Holocaust or all the stuff that generates the emotional power, um, you know, Israel just seems like a country that's doing things that are indefensible and not consistent with Jewish values and progressive uh, Jewish uh, politics and so it doesn't seem like such a big deal. So um, it really depends on where you're at. Um, and the other thing is that there is a sense in the Jewish community that Israel has become the religion um, and that standing with Israel is how you are a good Jew because most Jews in the U.S. don't keep kosher, they don't right. go to the temple, they don't do all of those things, but they stand with Israel. Ah, and uh, that's severely problematic because Israel's not a religion, it's a country, and like all countries, it does good things and bad things, and it speaks in our name, so it's our responsibility to be critical when it's doing things that deserve criticism. That's a very interesting point. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. Most of us uh, uh, Jewish Americans, that was, you know, we don't keep kosher, uh, and uh, we don't go to Shoal Temple all that much, uh, but that's the one way that we have been uh, feeling connected with our ancient Jewish identity. But you're right. I mean, nationalism, which came about in the late 19th century for the most part, is very, very different from a religion, from a faith. It's, it's, right. it's just a different uh, thing altogether. And, and the early Zionists, you know, there was a big debate in the Zionist movement. Should it be a nation state? Should it be a homeland? Should it be in Uganda, you know, or South America? You know, and there were a lot of people, sort of the Martin Buber types, who really warned that if it became a nationalistic, militaristic place, that it was going to kill Judaism, and it was going to really destroy the Jewish people, and that, um, we, that nationalism is actually very dangerous when it comes to morality. That's for sure. Nationalism is a very, very dangerous uh, thing. I mean, World War I was uh, just a, a terribly tragic result of nationalism, and of course, the state of uh, Israel was intended to be in its initiation uh, i mean it's it's a complex beginning but but the British in fighting the Ottoman Empire uh, at the end of the first world war uh, wanted to create a homeland for the Jews in Palestine and, and they had previously 
promised the same bit of land to the Arabs. So the British <laughs> yes, and the colonial powers are very uh, complicit in the catastrophe that we have now. I have to put a plug in here for this amazing book, A Peace to End All Peace, The Fall of the Ottoman Empire and the Creation of the Modern Middle East. It talks about all this stuff. It's incredible. The ineptitude of the British and the uh, you know sanctity, you know, believing that they just were God's gift to the planet is just astounding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I don't know if they were inept or they were looking out for their own well, corporate and economic interests and, you know, yeah, they they were, and they were also <laughs> they were also extremely, very humorously inept. It's it's amazing how they screwed up. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Jewish Americans have, for the longest time, traditionally voted Democratic. When the Jewish state was created, it was socialist by nature. We have a long liberal tradition of which we can be proud. Tell us what you see regarding this segment and the difficulty for them in believing some of the ugly, you know, just in accepting some of the ugly realities of 21st century Israel. Well, I think that it's not like 21st century Israel is different than 20th century Israel. I think that Israel had a lot of different forces going on. So on the one hand, there were the Bundes and the Socialists and the Kibbutz movement. But on the other hand, these Kibbutzim, with all of their socialist progressive ideas, were very racist and wouldn't, uh, you know, use Arab workers. Um, So that a lot of the issues that Israel's having now, which center around racism and around privileging Jews over the indigenous peoples, that goes back, you know, to the 1900s. I mean, the early Zionists, you know, they sent um, a group of rabbis to go check out the Holy Land to see if it was a good place, and the rabbis telegraphed back, you know, the bride is beautiful, but she's married to another man. So right from the beginning, the Zionists knew that if they were going to make a state for Jews that that was going to be Jewish only, that they would have to get rid of an indigenous population. So it's mm. not that, that that force wasn't happening, but it was happening with the other forces all mushed together at the same time. And, and the problem was that, you know, a lot of European Jews came to Israel and they didn't want to go live on some kibbutz and farm and be rugged and dirty. Right. And they wanted to live in the cities, you know. So this whole uh, mythology of creating the new Jew who was tied to the land and was muscular and bronzed, and, you know, uh-huh. that was going to be the new Jew. And yet these folks really, you know, they were German intellectuals, and they wanted to sit in cafes in Tel Aviv and, you know, discuss politics. So there's a lot of different uh, strains, but it's not like anything is new. It's just different. Yeah, very, very interesting. It's always, always good to know the real history of something. And, you know, not everybody is interested in history, but you can't really... Attack or address something that's happening now without knowing the history. It's just. I mean, it's complicated now because Israel has adopted the neoliberalism that's prevalent in the U.S., and that has um, crushed a lot of the more progressive safety net parts of Israel. Right. Um, So that Israelis are having, you know, just like the U.S., they're having huge gaps between rich and poor. They're having housing shortages. They're having problems obtaining health care. I mean, they're having all the issues that come along with a country that is drying up its safety net and becoming more neoliberal in its corporate policies. Yeah, that whole kibbutz thing, the whole socialist thing, that's... That's, that's pretty l- much gone. Yeah, long gone, long gone. Now, I don't know how many rabbis there are in the United States, but I can imagine, only imagine, how difficult it may be for many who... Th- their congregations are, are very pro-Israel, and the tradition, on the other hand, of... of Jewish dedication to ethics and principle. That mm-hmm. goes well before the whole nationalist uh, uh, spirit came in. Mm-hmm. And in your talks, 
you point out that there are a whole lot of anti-Zionist rabbis coming right. out of the Hebrew College in Boston. Yes. Uh, uh, tell us about that. Well, you know, we do have a very strong prophetic tradition that urges people to behave in a moral fashion and all that kind of stuff. Yes. And so what's happening is that, um, you know, there are increasing numbers of rabbis, they're not the majority, obviously, it's a small amount, right. that are basically saying that political Zionism has hijacked Judaism. You know, that Judaism is a religion, Israel is a country, Zionism is a political movement, and we have to separate them. And that you can be a good Jew and not be a Zionist or pro these policies of the Israeli government. And so this is a major split in the thinking of rabbis, because rabbis traditionally, uh, once Zionism took hold, um, you know, because the reform movement wasn't Zionist at the beginning, that came later. Um, but once political Zionism took hold, then the rabbis all, you know, marched in a row like ducks. Yeah. And um, the other thing is that there are a lot of rabbis who are very troubled by what's going on in Israel, but the people who hire them, and right. the, you know, machers in the community and the synagogue, um, are not going to allow them to speak out against it because they'll lose their jobs. So there's both, you know, rabbis who walk with the state of Israel. There are rabbis who feel muzzled by their congregations um, because it's very dangerous to speak out. There are very clear red lines in the Jewish community, and um, there are powerful interests that will, you know, evict you if you go beyond them. Um, and so that's what we're seeing. But the younger generation is finding more and more people who are really uh, troubled by the consequences of Zionism and really want to return to Judaism as a religion that is separate from loving the state. It must be exceedingly difficult for the rabbis. Oh, it is. I, I, I feel for them. I know before I went to uh, the High Holy Days, I, I, I spoke to uh, my rabbi, and you know, I wanted to make sure that there was you know, no uh, uh, you know, praising Israel and just you know, uh, talking about the importance of Israel. And, and he told me that there wouldn't be, and, and there wasn't, and I was glad of that. But they, they must be pressed much harder on the other side. Right. Well, I, you know, I don't know if people are aware that there is, um, in 2011, there was a conference in Tel Aviv in the Route Institute where they basically outlined a whole program of Israeli propaganda and hmm. uh, sort of selling the brand Israel. Um, and so there are millions and millions and millions of dollars put into this through the Israeli government organizations and PR firms and lobbying groups and U.S. organizations to present a particular version of Israel that doesn't include conflict and, you know, racism and the things that people like me are troubled by. Yeah. And so th that has created a kind of McCarthy-esque mm. um, scene um, so that there is active uh, silencing and muzzling of rabbis or academics or writers or, you know, I mean, I can go to a college campus and find out that the Hillel, you know, complained all the way up to the president that my presence on campus makes Jewish students feel unsafe. And that's a big word that people use a lot. You know, I, people like me make Jews feel unsafe. Yeah. And, you know, that's really a part of the whole propaganda machine. And it's a very powerful machine. And um, it really shapes Israel messaging, you know, in communities and on campuses. And, the Israeli government also has this program of shaliyah, which is an ambassador that is hired by a synagogue or a Jewish newspaper or a Hillel to control Israel messaging in whatever setting it's at. And, wow. you know, most of these folks are, you know, very nationalistic and yes. totally supportive and um, don't, you know, allow much diversity of opinion. Um, and that's their job. 
And I find it fascinating, as you mentioned, you know, how the state of Israel has, has changed. It's gone from left-leaning to a neoliberal, which is basically, I mean, the word liberal conf- is confusing because it's not really liberal. It's, no. it's, it's kind of you know, plutocratic, really, of, yeah. of, you know, giving all most of the power to the top, the wealthy people, and, you know, the, the actual people don't have much power. And I find it fascinating that some of the most the strongest, uh, uh, most dedicated Zionists are people on the pretty far right here in the United States, the, the evangelical Christians. Mm-hmm. Very, they're, they're very far to the right, and they are exceedingly intolerant of other voices. And, mm-hmm. and they have shut people down. I mean, there was the, I had on the show uh, a minister from Yale University, uh, whose name I can't remember right this second. The guy who lost his job? Yes. Yeah. And... and People have lost their jobs. There's been a a clampdown, as you say, a very McCarthyistic clampdown on people daring to criticize Israel, and I just find that uh, amazing in in the United States these days. And and they say that uh, you know liberals are the ones who are forcing political correctness. Uh uh-uh. uh it is absolutely not so. Right. I mean, I think a lot of people don't realize that there are you know tens of millions of Christian Zionists. In this country, yes. they're very powerful. Um, and after the '67 war, they really embraced the idea of building settlements in the occupied territories. Why? And their belief system comes from this very literal interpretation of the Bible that um, Jews need to return to uh, the Holy Land, and then there'll be this horrible apocalyptic thing that happens, oh, right. and then we'll all die, and they'll go to heaven. And right. you know, um, it's a very odd bedfellow to have. <laughs> if you're a Jew, <laughs> yes, and the thing that's very cynical is that the people who are very involved in building settlements, you know, overlook the contradiction that part of the Christian Zionist plan is that we're supposed to be burned to death, you know. Right. Um, and you can go into <laughs> settlements and see plaques to Hagee and buildings named after Christian Zionists because they've poured multi-million dollars um, into the settlement building project, which is a catastrophe. Uh, but it's uh, around this literal interpretation of the Bible. And so they see, you know... ISIS and Iran and all the stuff that's going on as, you know, the apocalypse is actually, you know, going to come yeah. next week kind of thing. So they're very concrete in their thinking. Yeah, they're, they're enthusiastic about uh, the apocalypse coming right. and help, <laughs> helping to make it happen. And I remember the name of the Yale chaplain. His name is Bruce Shipman. Yes. <laughs> Took me just a minute. What a uh, difficult time he went to. And as I, as I mentioned uh, early in, in the show, Keeping Democracy Alive, again, our guest is uh, Alice Rothschild. Uh, 2015 has been a very, very difficult year, especially for uh, Jews in Europe. There's been a sudden rise in violent, often deadly attacks against Jews in Europe. For the, for the most part, this seems to have the effect of Jews rallying to support Israel as the bulwark protecting Jews against such dangers. I'm guessing the anger against random Jews in is in uh, in Europe, you know, and and they just you know go into kosher markets, places like that, is related to the fact that most of the people are angry. They equate Israel with Judaism. How dangerous to the diaspora, to to we Jews around the world, is this solid identification of Israel with all Jews? I, I find people. You know, I think first of all, I think it's totally dangerous. Um, I also would uh, recommend um, you looking at this article by Uri Avneri, who's a, a oh, yes. leader mm-hmm. on the left. Um, he wrote a piece in Counterpunch called The Fallacy of Rising Anti-Semitism. And 
he looked at the situation in Europe, and it's much more complicated than, you know, the old Christian anti-Semitism that people worry about. So if you think about um, people who were um, uh, colonized by France um, and uh, in the Algerian struggle, the Jews mm -hmm. sided with the French. And so there are historical roots for Algerian uh, folks, Muslims, to hate Jews because they were against the Algerian resistance. Mm. And so... Some of the um, oh, interesting. stuff that's going on in Europe has to do with this kind of historical stuff. It has nothing to do with Christian anti-Semitism. It has to do with the struggle in Algeria. Um, and then there's oh, the whole issue of the behavior of the Israeli government and Jews standing with the Israeli government. And if you look at the critiques, it's about you know poor Arabs in suburbs who don't have work and they see you know they confuse Jews and Israel and they see that as part of what they hate. And it's really not the old-style Christian uh, anti-Semitism that Jews are very much afraid of. Um, it's much more politically based, and I think it speaks to the need to have a resolution of the conflict and to have justice for Muslims living in Europe, um, because, you know, that, you know, it's still much more dangerous to be a Muslim in Europe than to be a Jew. Yeah. Boy, you do bring up some interesting points, Alice. I, you, you've done some uh, amazing uh, research and shedding a lot of light on this. I had forgotten about the whole Algerian thing. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, the, there was a, a terrible uh, uh, situation where France owned Algeria and, and would not allow them to have their independence. I mean, unbelievably, blatantly racist. I mean, just mm -hmm. clearly so. And you're pointing out that... Uh, you know, for so many of the Jews who sided with France on that. And there's a lot of Algerians living in France now. Right, right. I mean, that's what happens when you have an empire. It, it kind of caves in on you, you know, the people who right. used to who lived in the outer areas. Uh, you know, and pe people have said that, uh, you know, I shouldn't be criticizing Israel at all, that, uh, you know, anti-Semitism way precedes uh, anything that the state of Israel has done. It just... It does seem to me, correct me if I'm wrong, if you have a different, better uh, uh, optic on this, that after the, you know, terrible war in Gaza last summer, where some 2,000 people were killed, including 500 children, um, that, uh, that how could it not make people, a lot of people who weren't anti-Semitic before, see, feel anger at what Israel did and therefore take it out on Jews. It seems, right. to, I mean, could it be coincidence that, that, that the attacks have gone up since that time? No, I don't think it's coincidence, no. but I do think that Israel, the policies of the Israeli government feed the flame. So yeah. Israel gets up and the leaders say, we speak for all the Jews, even oh, though no. they speak for me, they don't speak for you. That's no. a pretty presumptuous thing to say. Oh, so then it's not such a big leap for people to say, well, the Israeli policies are Jewish policies, whereas... I would maintain we have to maintain the distinction between the state of Israel and Jews and Judaism and Zionism because those are really different things and yes. you know, they fall into different silos and we have to analyze everything appropriately. Um, and, you know, if you look historically, anti-Semitism was a Christian phenomenon. Jews were blamed for killing Christ. Right. And in Islamic societies, Jews were actually welcomed and lived very uh, well and didn't have a whole lot of conflict. Right. And the uh, Muslim societies were much, much more tolerant and do not have a history of anti-Semitism. And the issues between Muslims and Jews happened with the founding of the State of Israel when the Jewish Israelis really shafted the Palestinians, who were largely Muslim. So this is a political hatred, not a religious hatred. 
And I think it's really important to keep that really clear. Yeah, that is a huge, very, very significant difference. And frankly, most of you know my my Jewish allies in the uh, in the community here don't get that difference. They they see that it's you know anti our religion, but it's as you say political and it's important to understand that big difference. And I'm reminded of what I said in the beginning of the show, quoting Anti Defamation League national director. I mean, the Anti Defamation League is all about dealing with anti-Semitism. And st- but it's not. It's not. In 1974, the Anti-Defamation League came out and said, we define a new anti-Semitism, which is criticism of Israel. Really? So they themselves, yeah, they had a oh paper. They themselves, you know, made the problem. Because <laughs> it's different. It's just different. And um, they've, you know, put them together, and then they've gone on their tirades to go, uh, you know, after what they're calling anti-Semites, because they criticize Israel. And it's just, it's a different uh, category. Well, I, I will say, maybe it took some uh, chutzpah, shall we say, of the national director to say recently of Netanyahu's call for all Jews to leave Europe, saying it would be, quote, a post- posthumous victory for Hitler and right. would fulfill his Judenrein vision. I think that's, you know, maybe well, there... You know, in, in this conflict, you see the use and abuse of the Holocaust you know, on a uh. daily basis. You know, Arafat is a new Hitler, Iran is going to have a second Holocaust. I mean, that's how you trigger people, and that's how you make people afraid. Yes. And fearful people don't behave intelligently, they behave out of fear. And so you can true? see how that is really used a lot in this particular area. Well, fear is so powerful. I mean, the the, the politics of fear, it's, it's amazing how well it's been used. It makes people oh, yeah. do it, as, as you say. And, you know, the Holocaust was horrific. You know, there's a whole cultural PTSD that is ongoing in our community, but it's really been abused, and I think it's really tragic how it's been abused. Yes, it it really has, and uh, it's interesting that, you know, many have tried to simplify the discussion by saying you're either for Israel or you're okay with another Holocaust. The Holocaust is so often... Those aren't the two options. <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> Never. You know, I, I thought it was fascinating that uh, James Spiegelman, who was creator of the powerful graphic novel Mouse, which was all about the Holocaust, he wrote, and I thought this was brilliant, Israel is like some badly battered child with PTSD who has grown up to batter others. Right. I think that's very and the other thing it's very important to remember is that with the founding of Israel, it was not only the Bundists and the Socialists and the Kibbutzim, there were all the right-wing Jabotinsky folks who were really fascist. I mean, they actually, if you go back to their early writings, they admired the Nazis. They just didn't want to be exterminated, but they thought fascism was a good idea. So you do have that strain of politics that is now much more prominent in the Israeli society. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the right wing there is just appallingly right wing. It's, right. it's amazing to me. Um, and those who steadfastly defend Judaism always point out, uh, who defends Israel, I should say. Oops, my error here. Those who steadfastly <laughs> defend Israel always point out that it is the one democracy in the Middle East region. Mm-hmm. And, and you ask, can a Jewish state ever be democratic if, by definition, Jewish exceptionalism is the foundation of the country. How democratic can it be if there is this exceptionalism, you know, special highways for Jews? I mean, Israel is a democracy for Jews, but it's not Uh a democracy of all its citizens. And I think one of the things people don't understand 
um, is that in Israel you're a citizen, but you also have a nationality. And there's something like, I don't know, 170, I mean, there's a huge number of nationalities. But the Jewish nationality trumps citizenship. So it's the Jewish nationality that is privileged, not, you know, so citizens aren't equal. So by definition, you can't be a democracy. And also, um, you know, in a democracy, you struggle with all of the downside things that you've done. Like in the U.S., we struggled with uh, slavery and yes. how we treated Native Americans and all the stuff that comes into making a country. But that's what makes a democracy strong. But in Israel, the uh, Palestinian experience of '48, the mm. racism towards Mizrahi Jews, the second-class citizenship of Palestinians in Israel, the occupation, these are not issues that people struggle with. Okay, I mean, it's the Nakba, the Palestinian experience, is not even taught in the school. Right. So it's invisible. So, you know, there are no building blocks to create a more just, egalitarian society, because that's not the goal. The goal is to create a Jewish state where Jews are privileged over everyone else, hmm. to have sort of a tough, militaristic stance against the world. And that's, you know, a kind of PTSD stance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's not... Um, viable as a long-term strategy. Mm. It's like, you know, Netanyahu talks about what he wants is contained conflict. You know, just whack the Gazans down every couple of years, mow the lawn, and, you know, keep them suppressed. Well, that's, you know, that's only going to generate more trouble. That's not a, no. a viable strategy. So that's what troubles people like me. And, and just politically, I mean, as a military strategy, what, was, what happened in Gaza in, 20, in the summer of 2014 how can that not be a really, really dumb idea? You guaranteed the young generation, the kids, and you know, angry, hopeless. Yeah, absolutely. What I mean, just I mean, it's like you you're feeding the most militant aspects of society, and you're also saying the only time you get noticed is when you drop Katusha rockets on Sidrat. You know, mm. when you're quiet and starving and don't have any water and electricity, and your kids can't go to school and you don't have a house, then no one notices. Yeah, you know, that's not a good message. <laughs> it's a dumb strategy. It's a really dumb strategy. It's I have a strategy to... that's based on racism here mm. and a militaristic kind of attitude, um, and it's very dangerous. And it has nothing to do with Judaism. No, you know, that's true. What does it mean to be a Jewish state? You know, is it based on Jewish values, or this has nothing to do with Judaism? It has to do with being a sort of militaristic, edging into fascism, right wing kind of state that has pockets of you know, liberal Tel Aviv, where it's also still very racist, you know, so it's complicated. It's very complicated. Well, of course, being Jews, we're always complicated. Many... You know, we're as complicated as everybody else. <laughs> oh, maybe so. Uh, if you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest today is Alice Rothschild. We're talking about uh, difficulty for, for Jews in, in the United States these days and in, in Europe as well. You know, the attacks on Jews and and congregations trying to, to deal with it, you know, with, with the reality of it. And you mentioned a couple of things which I want to follow up on. Education, you know, it's extremely important to politics, no matter where it is. You look at our school system here in the currently United States. There, there are certain things that are emphasized in our so-called history, which becomes kind of mythic at times. Other things that are absolutely left out, they, mm -hmm. they don't fit the narrative. Uh, you know, it, 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 schools here hew to narrow official narratives when teaching history. And, and it's oftentimes more of a comforting myth, which supersedes the more uncomfortable reality. 
Mm-hmm. Now, in Israel's history, as you mentioned, 1948 is like our 1776. You know, you, you've written about teaching about this moment from a Palestinian's point of view. They call it the Nakba, the catastrophe. But to talk about that apparently is a civil offense. offense yeah. Tell us about that. How significant is that? You can't even talk well, about very, the Nakba? Yeah, um, it's very significant. First of all, uh, most people don't understand that in Israel, most uh, the schools are segregated, so they're Jewish schools and Arab schools. Oh, and the Jewish geez. schools are either religious or oh, secular. Mm. Um, and even in the Arab schools, they're not allowed to teach the Nakba, the Palestinian experience of 48. Um, so there's this big emptiness where history lives that people don't learn about, so how can they understand what's happening if they don't have the basis for it? And then in, um, I think it was 2011, the Knesset, which is the parliament, yes. passed a law that commemorating the Nakba um, is a civil offense and that an institution would lose its government funding if it did that. And um, it's really happening. I mean, it came home for me um, in the fact that you know, I made this film called Voices Across the Divide, and it has uh, Hebrew and Arabic subtitles. So it played in a film festival in Tel Aviv um, in 2013, and it was a film festival called Nakba and Return. So it was put on by this lefty Israeli organization called Zahrat, which means remembering. And it was films exploring uh, the Palestinian experience of 48 and also the whole issue of Palestinian right of return. So two incredibly hot-button issues in Israel. And then last year, uh, they were putting on the film festival again, and the Israeli government went after the Cinematheque, which was showing the films, and said that if they showed the films, they would lose their funding. And they decided to show the films anyway. So they're, you know, even on just showing films, um, going after institutions um, that talk about this history. And uh, the folks from Zahrat say that, you know, they have all these resources for teachers, Jewish-Israeli teachers, but the teachers have to be very careful and discreet so that no one catches them because you're not allowed to do this. You will lose funding, and you will. So um, that's part of the McCarthy-esque, you know, (laughs) silencing um, history thing that's going on in Israel. Amazing. Well, do tell us, you mentioned your film, Voices Across the Divide. What is the purpose of that film? Where, where is it being seen? And, and just, just tell us about that. I know people okay. can access it. Somewhere. So um, Voices Across the Divide is a film that explores the history of the Israel-Palestine conflict through interviews with Palestinians living in the United States. So it's people who you know, lived through 48 or 67 or were born in Kuwait or whatever happened to them, and exploring... What are the consequences of what happened in 48? And what was the reality? Because, you know, like many Jews, I grew up with, you know, the land without a people, the people without a land thing. So, first of all, um, I established that there was actual cities and communities and lives and businesses and everything before 48. And then people talk about, you know, getting dispossessed, getting thrown out. And um, then, you know, I explore the second big dispossession, which was in 67, and sort of the consequences of all of this, and then immigration to the United States. And so I tell these stories through interviews with Palestinians. So it's not like um, a history book. It's like stories. And so it, it's very personal. Um, and I use a lot of family photos, historical footage, and then I throw in some animated maps. And, you know, and then I'm part of the discourse. So I sort of invite people into the conversation and say, look, this is what I learned. Walk with me on this one. And what does this mean? You know, so I, I keep checking in with the viewer to be sure they're doing okay. Uh-huh. Um, and then it ends with the work that the different people in the film are doing now. So this is sort of my attempt 
to uh, shed some light on a history that isn't taught, um, that most people in the U.S. have no idea about. And it's also my attempt to show uh, the human commonality. So, you know, when I look at the pictures of people's grandparents uh, that lived in, you know, Jerusalem, they look a lot like my grandparents. And when mm -hmm. I hear the immigration stories, they sound like my grandparents' immigration stories. <laughs> you know, it's like it really makes it um, kind of de demonizes people who've been demonized in our culture. So um, it's my effort to be part of that discourse. And um, I also think that since this is so hard for people to yes. wrap their brains around, yeah. that using culture and movies and music and all those kinds of things is a uh -huh. good way to introduce people because, you know, it's culture. It's a movie. It's not like someone giving a political lecture. But you can really get people you know, under their radar and under their resistance to just recognize that these people are like us and that there are political forces that led to XYZ and that we need to question those forces. And, you know, so that's what this film is about. And it premiered at the Boston Palestine Film Festival and co-won the Audience Award. And it also won an award in Toronto, a Making the Difference Award. And um, it's, um, there's a website that has all the interviews. It has a study guide. It has uh, you know, a lot of history and resources. So it's a very uh, educational, in-depth website. And, um, you know, it's been, I've been traveling with the film because I love to do Q&As um, mm -hmm. all over yeah. the country, and it's been shown, as I said, in Tel Aviv and then in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem. And um, the conversations afterwards are just fascinating because everybody's buttons are pushed, whether they're happy or sad or identifying or furious or whatever it is, you know, people need to talk. And some people, some groups show the film and have a pa panel yeah. conversation. Um, you know, it's, it, there are all different ways to do it. It's been in a number of festivals. It can be ordered off the website. And what is that website? It's uh, voicesacrossthedivide.com. Pretty simple, um, yeah. You know, because I really want it to get out there um, for communities to look at, universities. Uh, you know, it's been shown in some, you know, theaters. It, it's just been all over the place. So I'm just working on getting it out there. Interesting stuff. And you've probably heard uh, similar criticisms that I've gotten. Listeners have said that I'm too one-sidedly critical of Israel and never criticize Hamas. They say Israel was rightfully defending itself from rocket attacks by launching the summer war of 2014. You've also been asked, you know, and the choice is either do what they did in Gaza, you know, just crush them completely, or accept you know, the rockets are going to be attacking our, our families all the time. Those are the two choices. You've also been asked why you have not condemned Hamas. What, what is your, your response? Do, do, they still want to drive Jewish Israelis into the sea, do they not? Does Hamas not pose an existential threat to Israel? So, first of all, I, I recommend you read my second book, On the Brink, <laughs> which okay. is about the run-up to war, which is a very different scenario than what you just gave. Um, but to just address um, the Hamas issue, yes. um, I think it's important, first of all, to look at Hamas and, and remember that this organization started in response to Israeli oppression um, and that there are some very um, horrific sides to Hamas. There are suicide bombers and militants and people that are committed to the destruction of Israel. There are also uh, more moderate sides that have developed schools and hospitals and social service supports and uh, have been taking care of a population that nobody is willing to pay attention to. And that this is not a monolithic organization. There are extremists, there are moderates. And if you look at the history, the Israeli military has a long history of assassinating 
the more moderate elements in Hamas because Israel needs Hamas to be as extremist as possible to justify the military actions. Mm. Um, now, one of the things that I like to remind people is that there was a democratic election in yes. 2005. It was certified by Jimmy Carter, and Hamas won. And if you look at the pollsters, um, the people voted for Hamas in the legislative body, not because they wanted to drive Jews into the sea, but they voted for Hamas because Hamas was promising a clean government, and people were disgusted with Fatah, which was fairly corrupt. It had been unsuccessful in reaching a peace agreement. And the fact that Hamas was willing to be in an election was, you know, the first step towards Hamas recognizing a two-state solution. And, in fact, you know, the Arab countries um, had a Saudi peace plan that recognized a two-state solution, and Arafat in 88 recognized Israel. I mean, there's a long history of um, different Arab countries and Arab leaders taking steps that if you were really interested in making peace, you could have done it. Yes. So anyway, there's this election, and instead of saying, okay, this is a democracy, we don't like who won, but on the other hand, it's a democracy, and we have to respect that, um, Israel and the international community immediately clamped down and made this very aggressive blockade of Gaza, which basically, I mean, this is a six by 26 mile strip of land with, you know, now there's, what, 1.8 million people there. It's a fairly desperate place. Yes. And to make a blockade is only to make people more desperate. And then the following year, there was a totally ridiculous fratricidal war between Hamas and Fatah, mm-hmm. which was partially defend, uh, funded by the U.S., by the way. Mm. And Hamas won. And, you know, what I've had Palestinians say to me is, you know, if Hamas was elected and you let them govern, they either had two choices. They would either mature into a responsible party that actually delivered what they promised, or they would have been voted out of office. Um, but they were never given a chance. And, you know, people talk about them as terrorists. Yes. You know, you look back at what the Jews were doing in the early 1900s with the Irgun and the Stern Gang and, um, you know, Palmach. I mean, they were blowing up buses and destroying, you know, villages and massacring. They were doing all the things that, that terrorists do, and then they became prime ministers of Israel. So... You know, the word is a complicated word, and it depends on whether someone's your freedom fighter or your terrorist. Um, but I think at this point, um, that although some of the rhetoric of Hamas is very worrisome, that in actuality, um, the Hamas leaders understand that Israel's here to stay, but they are so oppressed by the siege and the multi- I mean, there have been six, uh, in six years, three completely devastating wars. That's not how you're going to make peace with the people there. Yeah. You know, they have to have an economy. They have to have viable lives. That's what's going to make peace. And so, you know, I think the Israeli government keeps doing things to just make things worse and worse and bring out the most aggressive militant elements. Um, And there are a lot of other elements. And, you know, I think it's very important to give them space to flourish, and they have no space. Yeah, it's it's been called the world's largest open-air prison. Yeah, I mean, the problem with that is that in a prison, the guards are responsible for the prisoner's welfare. But in this prison, the guards are not responsible. They've thrown out the key. Yeah. My goodness. So it's a good metaphor, but it's not exactly the right metaphor. Well, it's actually worse than well, that. And, and some people, of course, have said, well, you know, Jewish children are being attacked, and, and the Palestinians, the Hamas, they don't care about their children as much. They well, not that's just complete ignorance. Well, what about... I, I know, I mean, that's using them as shields is absurd. Ignorant. But what about, I mean, don't some of the children get strapped with bombs and, you know, made into, uh, uh, you know, suicidal bombers? Um. You know, I, I don't know if that happens or not, but I do know that the overwhelming majority of Palestinians are not terrorists. They love their children. It's a totally family-oriented culture. And that that kind of statement is so egregious. 
I mean, you could say the Israelis' mothers don't love their children because they send them off to the army. You know, it's like, really? You know, what kind of racist, ridiculous statement yeah. is that? I, I just find it really offensive because I know so many Palestinians that are deeply committed oh, to their families, to democracy, to making a better life, and they're living in a very oppressed situation. We, and I think you have to remember that reality, you know? Yes. And we, we had to get that question out of the way. And... and, and <laughs> We've, we've heard the, the incendiary word apartheid used to describe Israeli policy toward non-Jews. And I remember in 1975, there was the UN General Assembly Resolution 3379, which, quote, determined that Zionism is a form of racism and racial discrimination, end quote. This was met by outrage by most of the West at the time. Is it true? Does Zionism equal racism? Is the word apartheid very hot-button word. Is that accurate, or is it overblown? And not just against Arabs, but against African Jews seeking mm -hmm. to emigrate to Israel. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, Zionism is a political movement that, I ha that has in its foundations some very racist ideas. And, you know, if you look at the early Zionists, they were very in favor of bringing Eastern European and European Jews to Israel. Uh. They looked at the Jews in North Africa and in the Arab-speaking countries as second-rate, not really Jewish, you know, very derogatory, racist kind of comments. And they only uh, decided to bring Jews from those areas of the world to Israel when they realized that six million Jews had perished in the Holocaust, and they needed Jewish bodies. Um, so if you really, you know, if you read Tom Segev in The Seventh Million, I mean, it is unbelievably racist what was going on. So there is a lot of racism in Zionism. Um, if you look at the word apartheid, it means separateness. Right. And if you are in Israel or if you're in the occupied territories, it is very clear that there is a form of separateness. And you can call it apartheid, you can call it separateness. I, you know, I, I don't need to claim that word, although I do think it's a very useful word. Um, the thing that is interesting about apartheid is that, you know, it's very different than South African apartheid, mm -hmm. because in South Africa, they wanted the blacks to work for the whites, whereas in the occupied territories, the goal is to be separate, but also not to allow Palestinians to work, you know, as a group for the Jewish state. Um, so it's a little bit worse. I mean, that's what Bishop Tutu said, that it's actually worse than mm -hmm. South African apartheid because of the denial of employment. Um, and, you know, when I'm in the West Bank and I see roads that are only for people with Israeli license plates, read Jews, they go to the settlements and the Palestinians have to go miles out of their way on these poor roads, um, even though what they want to do is get across the street. Or I look at the uh, separation wall, which goes through right. Palestinian areas, neighborhoods in East Jerusalem, and cuts people off from their land. And I mean, this is apartheid. I mean, this is really... Um, an oppressive kind of regime. And so, you know, I find the apartheid word very appropriate. You know, if it pushes too many buttons, call it apartheid. But it's a very unjust system. You know, Jews get, you know, one kind of legal um, system and the Palestinians are under military mm. rule. Jews mm. get one kind of highway and the Palestinians in the West Bank get And it. that flies... It, it just, you know, it's not subtle. It, it flies so much in the face of what I've always thought of as Jewish identity, which is about ethics, about equal justice. Mm -hmm. You know, it just is amazing to me. And no doubt you've heard the term I've heard 
self-hating Jews. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That that is meant to describe those of us who criticize policies right. of the state of Israel. You write the the conflation of all Jews with Israel is in itself a dangerous anti-Semitic right. trope. Say more about that, if you would please. Right. That term well, self-hating. You know, I think that because Israel is claiming to speak for Jews, it puts us in this very untenable position because it doesn't speak for all Jews. And, you know, the diaspora was looked at as, you know, we were just the failures because we didn't go there. And I think what's happening now is that the diaspora is claiming its own yes. and its right to speak and its right to be critical, and I think that's very healthy. Yes. Um, and, you know, self-hating Jew only has power if you let it have power. I know I'm not a self-hating no, Jew. So, you know, people call me that, and it just... It doesn't do a whole lot for me. I mean, I feel sorry for the people that yeah. feel obliged yeah. to scream at me, but, you know, it doesn't, it just rolls off my back because it's a ridiculous statement in, in my mind. The other thing is, you know, we talk about Jewish values and Jewish morals and all that kind of stuff, and I do think we have a very powerful prophetic tradition. Yes. But I think what we've learned from the last 150 years is that really Jews are no better or no worse than anyone else, and that Israel is a country with enormous strengths, and enormous flaws like every other country. And one of the things I think it's very important for us to do is to get rid of our sense of chosenness. Because oh, I think it's led us to a really bad place. Ooh, yes. um, I mean, we have, you know, our traditions have a lot to teach people, but so don't a lot of other people. Absolutely. And, you know, we're no better than anyone else, and I think it's very important for us to have that humility as we move forward and to use that which is very beautiful in our history and our traditions, but not to feel so chosen. Uh, I've always bristled at that phrase, the chosen people. It's just, right. it's just, it's just wrong. You've begun. My mother used to say, um, you know, it's not a bad phrase. You're chosen because you have more responsibility to make the world a better place. I think that's just like, um, it's not a good mindset to be. No. Now you, I, I presume, have gone into into uh, synagogues, temples, shows, and, and talked to people, and it must be very difficult, especially for, frankly, you know, older. Uh, Jewish Americans, what's how, what's it like there? Is it you know really heartbreaking for them? I mean, this has got to right. be some difficult well, stuff. Well, it's it's very very hard for me to get into a Jewish venue because I'm, <laughs> I'm sort of blacklisted. But yeah. um, which is a you know I think a tragedy because I think I do have something to offer. Um, but I have been in some Jewish venues, and you know it's there's a wide range of response for a lot of sort of older, more mainstream Jews. Um, they're either very angry with me. Um, or they're heartbroken. Because, you know, I have to understand this by looking at how my mother used to feel. I mean, my mother really believed in the state of Israel and loved it and mm -hmm. supported it. And it was a magical place that really could do very little wrong. Right. So as she became more aware of the contradictions, it was exquisitely painful and heartbreaking. And I actually had an experience in a temple where people sat in a circle and wept. And they wept because they were seeing their fantasy of this magical place dying. And they knew that they had to give up the fantasy, and it was powerfully painful. So, yeah, I respect that. I mean, I have a lot of respect sure. for where people are and where they need to go and you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so it, it can be really hard, and I think part of what the task is is to do this kind of communal group therapy so that people mm -hmm. can get over it and get to a better place where we can do something constructive together. But some people just react with anger, and that's... Well, of course. Um, but, 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 you know, being reflective, looking inward, being open to that, that's, that's therapy. It's sometimes usually difficult to do. 
but uh, you know, it, it can be very liberating. Is there, there must be, I can't help but think this, I think I know the answer to the question I'm going to ask. Is there a divide between generations of Jewish Americans, older folks lining up solidly with Israel, younger people questioning? What have you yeah. found out? Um, you know, it, if you look at the polls, I think when you get, it's very age-related, and when you get to about 35, more than half of U.S. Jews really are not at all committed to Israel or are sympathetic to Palestinians. Um, but within each age group, particularly in younger people, you get people who, you know, have, they've been on birthright and they're in Hillel and they're signed up to be a David Fellow and they're totally marching with what I would consider the right wing. But, you know, if you look at the overall population, um, as you go down in age, people are more concerned about human rights issues um, and about the behavior, you know, the behavior of the Israeli government in the occupied territories and less likely to give them a pass. And I think that that's very healthy. Um, one of the most exciting things for me is the Open Hillel movement. Do you know about that? Yes, tell us a little bit, though. So, you know, um, Hillel has established a set of guidelines that you're not allowed to talk about or have speakers about, like, for instance, boycott um, in the Hillel umbrella. Um, and a group of college students are now uh, saying that they're not going to observe these guidelines and um, that they're going to, you know, they don't have to agree with each other, but they have to be able to talk about things yes. and expose the things. And so... Um, Colleges are now finding that the Hillels are declaring themselves open Hillels. Mm-hmm. Um, and just last night, um, there was this major victory. It was written about in the forward, if you look at the, today's forward, um, where uh, some civil rights leaders um, from the Freedom Summer um, oh, wow. 60s and you know, that have now dedicated themselves to Israel-Palestine issues um, spoke at Harvard Hillel you know, in the building physically with some African-Americans and Jews and, you know, had a very open discussion that included the word boycott, and um, it happened. And so everybody is very like, mm. ah, what does this mean? Because this is theoretically not allowed. And if you read the mm. forward article, um, the Hillel folks are sort of dancing around trying to, like, look like good liberals, and it's just fascinating to hear their um rationale. Oh, I know. It's always, it's been difficult for a long time being, you know, liberal Jew and, you know, liberal, and then, you know, the struggle about, uh, you know, being lockstep with Israel. It's been an interesting, right. I, I see real movement on that. And I just, you make a very interesting observation, and that is, after centuries of powerlessness, how we as a community handle our new position of power and privilege is critical to the survival of an ethical Jewish tradition. Mm-hmm. Our very identity as Jews fades, uh, faces an historic challenge. I suspect you agree. What encouraging signs do you see? I, gotta, I always try to end on a positive note. <laughs> well, um, first of all, I'm very encouraged by Open Hello. Um, I'm very encouraged by um, the If Not Now group that formed after the Gaza War, and these were young people who went into communal, Jewish communal organizations and demanded that they recognize the suffering of Gazans. Um, and they did this in the name of, of Judaism and their Jewish morality and identity and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm very encouraged that in the boycott, divestment, and sanction movement, there are a lot of Jews of all ages very active in this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'm encouraged by the fact that um, the discourse is much wider. I mean, you know, there's Bay Street, which is trying to be in opposition to APAC. There yes. are alternative tours that, you know, I, I run a health and human rights tour that I co-organize that go every year. There's a huge amount of access to information um, that was invisible 30 years ago. Um, and also, you know, Palestinians are getting much more um, outspoken about what's going on and much more able to be heard because of the Internet and social media and everybody has their iPhone and all that kind of sure. stuff that, that, that has made the world a much 
smaller place, which I think is very, very important. Um, and the other thing is that people are starting to um, both internationalize and localize the struggle. And what I mean by that is, you know, this isn't just about what's going on in the occupied territories. Our police are being trained by Israeli security in Israel, funded by the ADL and by a group called Jinza and other Jewish organizations, which I find appalling. Wow. And then they take the security measures that they've learned where, that are done on occupied people, and they bring them home here and use military weaponry that our Defense Department doesn't want anymore. And then we have Ferguson. Then we have all the things that are going on in our police departments in the U.S. So this comes back yes. and bites us. You know, uh. Our prison system, there are prisons being built uh, by G4S. True. This is a global prison company. They have huge human rights violations in Israel. You know, they're now, you know, they're building prisons in, in the U.S. You know, the wall with Mexico is built partially with an Israeli company. I mean, this stuff it, is affecting us, you know, and if our country is um, spending $3 billion a year to support the Israeli defense system, that's $3 billion that we don't have for our own country, for schools and hospitals and all the things that we need. So, you know, there's increased awareness about all this stuff, and it's very, um, there are coalitions, broad coalitions, like with African Americans and, you know, from Ferguson to Jerusalem. I mean, all that kind of stuff is going on. And I think that that's um, the sort of broadening of the movement is really, really powerful and inspiring. It is indeed, and uh, as has been said, the truth shall make you free. Sometimes it's <laughs> difficult to look at the truth. Websites, what websites can you point people to? Voicesacrossthedivide.com, is it, and what else? Right, right. Um, and I also have a website, alicerothschild.com, sure. that has a lot of my writings and stuff. Um, I think Jewish Voice for Peace has an excellent yes, website. Very good. The U.S. Campaign Against Israeli Occupation has an excellent website. Um, if you want to learn more about BDS, the boycott movement, BDSmovement.net is an excellent website. I mean, it, the, the stuff is out there. I mean, oh, if yes. you want to know about um, the Israelis uh, training our police, just Google, you know, American police trained in Israel, and the amazing <laughs> articles just pop right up. So it, it's very easy to find this stuff out. Um, and I recommend, you know, the Mondo Weiss blog, oh, uh, yes. Plus 972, and the Electronic Intifada as three excellent sources of information that if you put it all together, you'll really know what's going on. Information is powerful, for sure. Knowledge is powerful. Alice Rothschild, thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you. What can I do still loving you? It's all a dream. How can we hang on to dream? How can it really be the way it seems? What can I do? She's the same through with how it was. What will I try? I still don't see why she says what she does. How can we hang on to dreams? How can it really be the way it seems? can I do still loving you it's all a dream how can we hang on to a dream how can 
Can it really be the way it seems? How can we hang on to a dream? 